Welcome to the 326th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with W.M. Akers, author of the novel West Side Saints. And stay tuned after the interview for a short audiobook excerpt from the audiobook of West Side Saints. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is W.M. Akers, author of the new novel, West Side Saints. Will, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So if someone listening hasn't heard about West Side Saints yet, how would you describe the novel? So the book is a 1920s mystery set in an alternate reality version of New York where the entire west side of Manhattan has been walled off and is completely deserted and overgrown and overrun with magical secrets and dangers. It's the sequel to my first book from last year, West Side. It stars the same character, Gilda Carr, a detective who specializes in tiny mysteries, things like, you know, what happened to my keys? What's that weird smell? Like, why is my neighbor's dog barking at this particular time every day? That kind of thing. So do you remember the original idea that led you to write West Side and now West Side Saints? Yeah, I so I've 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 loved mystery novels my entire life. I've particularly loved the subgenre of the American detective novel. Um but I've always been sort of uh bemused by the idea that first of all that a private detective in a book can make a living basically just by stumbling over dead bodies and then trying to find out who killed them. Um, in real life, uh, that seems like not just a dangerous, but sort of a very, you know, unproductive way of making a living. Um, and then I've also, I also just love the idea that these fictional detectives, when confronted with a murder, are always like, ooh, yes, 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 me. I want to find out who killed this person. Whereas, you know, in real life, me, you, most people would say like, oh, I want to get as far away from this as possible. So I was like, I want to write about a private detective who has that attitude, understands that murder is dangerous and wants to stay away from it. And so instead focuses on the exact opposite, tries to stay safe and stay, stay sane by drilling into the smallest mysteries possible. So your novel, as you mentioned earlier, is set kind of in a twisted version of jazz age, New York city. How much research did you do regarding the real 1920s New York? A lot, but it's it's the kind of research um, that is the easiest and most pleasant because it's a period that I was already interested in and had already read a lot about. So it wasn't so much a question of like going down to the local library and like stacking up a huge pile of nonfiction books. It was more a question of just drilling down into things that I already knew about, things that I was already interested in, and kind of filling out my knowledge. A huge part of it was uh, just waiting around in the New York Times archives, which are very usefully digitized and very, very searchable um, and are a tremendous way to learn about just like what was on people's minds at a particular time in history. I got so obsessed with all the weird stuff that I was finding in the New York Times archives for 1921 that I sort of spun that off into its own project, which is now a newsletter called Strange Times, where I uh, do a close reading of uh, a single day in the New York Times archives and then type up the weirdest articles I find, which have ra- ranged from like a two sentence article about a mule that kicked a man whose pocket was full of dynamite and the man exploded, but the mule was unharmed to like several thousand word uh, articles about gangsters and bank robbers and, you know, people on crazy sort of 1920s crime sprees. So for people who are familiar with New York City, 
What are the biggest differences between modern day New York and 1920s New York in terms of neighborhoods and buildings, et cetera? One of the coolest things about writing about New York, um, especially as somebody who lived in New York City for a very, very long time, my family and I moved to Philadelphia last summer, but when I was working on West Side and West Side Saints, I was still living in New York, um, is that in a lot of ways, the landscape hasn't changed dramatically since like the late 1890s. Um, you can walk down a street in New York, and even though there may be these like great big uh, glass and steel skyscrapers around, there will, on most blocks, be enough um, like 100, 120-year-old buildings that you can. it's relatively easy to imagine what the city would have looked like uh, in that period. In 1920s New York, the subway was a thing. Um, there were still streetcars and the elevated lines, but, um, you know, like the Yankees were playing, like there's a lot, you know, like Broadway was a big deal. There's a lot of continuity there, um, that it's relatively easy to sort of like let yourself drift back in time and inhabit that space, which is part of what made my project so fun because I was able to take what is a relatively recognizable vision of New York, 1920s New York, which both looks like New York today, but it's also really familiar to us from, um, you know, film and novels and television, and then kind of like twist it on its side and upend it by taking the entire west side of the island, putting it behind a huge fence and just like emptying it of people and like making the trees 300 feet tall and just sort of interweaving all sorts of strange magic. So it's a, it's a vision of New York that's both recognizable and then also like very, very uncanny and strange, which I think is a lot of fun. So what are your earliest memories of reading and books Oh boy. Um, I remember reading Stuart Little when I was a kid. I think that was the, one of the first big chapter books that I read. That was like a very big accomplishment for me. And I remember, um, the, uh, when I was, my gosh, I must've been, I don't know, first or second grade, something like that. And we took our class book to the school library and I saw there was a book that I wanted to check out, uh, that had a cat on the side. And I drew a picture of the cat to remind myself that I wanted to check it out next time. And it was called Manhattan is missing. And it was about a, a cat named Manhattan that goes missing. So that, that was sort of the first New York mystery novel that I ever read or more likely had my parents read to me. So what was the path to publication like for you to get your first novel, West Side, published? It was a very traditional um, path, sort of the one that that you think of. I um, wrote the book, which took a good year and a half or two years longer than I thought it was going to, which is a good thing, because if I'd known how long it would take, I might not have done it. Um, and then I just uh, sort of started like beating the ground, querying agents, um, you know, like looking uh, agents up on Twitter, um, on like various agency websites, taking a look at whose lists looked like what I write, who was looking for the kind of book that I had written. And I queried a lot of agents, finally got very lucky to find one who was interested in the book. Um, she gave me notes. I rewrote it according to her notes. She uh, decided to rep the book and then sent it out on publication or, you know, first submission for publication. That took, you must have submitted it to 20, 25 different publishing houses before the good folks at Harper Voyager were like, Ooh, yes, yes, us. Um, and, uh, it found its home. So when you were working on West side and West side saints, what is your writing process like? Do you outline your novels extensively or do you write more organically? It's interesting that you asked about West side and West side saints, because my process has changed a lot. Um, since I started writing West side, partly because writing West side it was the first, it was, it was by far the longest writing project I'd ever undertaken. And I'd always been somebody who outlined very, very lightly, if at all. And I got halfway through the first or second draft of that. And I just stopped dead because I was like, Oh my God, I have no idea what this story is about. I don't know where it's going. I don't know 
who done it really. I think I had a vague idea, but I didn't know really how that fit in. And I think I got to a place where I, I was maybe a third of the way through the novel and Gilda like opened a, do- a closet door and found a bomb in there. And then I just stopped writing. I was like, I don't know why there's a bomb in there. I just wrote that. I don't know who put it there. I don't know anything. And so I went back and started working on a very, very detailed outline for what became the rest of the novel. And through that developed a process of very rigorous outlining um, whereby I will really force myself to nail down like all the major turning points, figure out what every single scene is about, write through what's going to happen in that scene, every beat of that scene, as much description and even dialogue as I can think of as I work, as I'm outlining. And I really force myself to do all of that heavy lifting in the outlining process uh, to the point where I will end up with an outline that is 15, 20,000 words long for a book that's going to be 80,000 words long. Um, so it's really more, uh, not just an outline, but really like a skeleton for the book. And what that means is that by the time I sit down to actually do composition, I can, as I'm working on a single scene, trust that like the rest of the book makes sense. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. The story is going to work. And so I can really just like, as I'm writing a scene, enjoy writing that scene and not be worrying about what's going to happen in the rest of the book. Um, This is also really important because since uh, I started writing Westside, my wife and I have had two kids, which means that the time that I have to write now is often very fractured. Um, And it's, it's essential to be able to sit down, look at my outline and just go without having to sit down and like, like think about like, actually, what am I doing in this moment? And so what writing advice would you offer for listeners who are writing their own stories and novels? Well, don't be afraid to outline. Um, It's something that I think a lot of early writers are taught not to do. Um, I know I have friends who are even very, very serious writers who don't outline because they've been taught not to um, because they're afraid that it will somehow stifle their creativity. I think for some writers it might, but my experience has always been that knowing what's going to be happening in the larger novel, having a really, really good framework for that actually frees my creativity moment to moment. Um, you know, my, uh, the analogy I always use is like, if you were going to build a house, you would want blueprints. You wouldn't say like, well, I won't be able to build a good house if I know what's happening next. It's like, no, you, you'll be able to build a much better house and a lot faster if you know what everything's supposed to connect to. So what are you working on now? 
I am happily a little bit in between projects at the moment. I just finished a new novel, which is unrelated to West Side and West Side Saints, which my agent has out right now, which is about um, a, a murder mystery set in the wild, weird world of board gaming hobby stores. Um, and I'm also working on getting a new expansion for my baseball dice game, Dead Ball, um, up on Kickstarter in the next week or two. Um, and beyond that, I'm just trying to enjoy the nice weather and uh, keep an eye on my kids. So what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Well, so like everybody else, I'm you know in quarantine right now and spending a lot of time at home. And one of the ways that I'm trying to keep my head screwed on straight is resisting the urge to just stare at my phone all the time. And so uh, a hobby or a habit I've picked up is when I'm hanging out with my kids uh, who are two and four. So there's a lot of time when they're playing and they don't need me, but I still need to be in the room. Um, rather than staring at my phone, I just try to like have a book to pick up and look at. And it's better if it's nonfiction because with nonfiction, it's easier to like read a paragraph or two and then set it right down. And I'm currently on a tear of reading books about the history of the space program. So I read The Right Stuff. Um, I read a really interesting book about Sergei Korolev, the guy who was the founder of the Soviet space program. And I'm currently about to finish a book about Werner von Braun um, and his contributions to the space program in the United States. So I'm on like this weird like rocketry tear, which is fun because it has just absolutely nothing to do with my work, which can be very freeing, I think, and also really good for a writer to sometimes be able to spend time with something that just is completely unrelated to what you do. I really don't write books about rocketry. And so it's nice to just like sit down and get to like really learn about this field that I had no idea I was particularly interested in. So where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your books? Well, I am on Twitter at Weijum, O-U-I-J-U-M. Um, although I've actually been tweeting a lot less since the pandemic started, another approach to keep my head uh, screwed on straight. And then you can also learn more about my work generally at WMAkers.net. That's W-M-A-K-E-R-S.net. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with WM Akers, author of the new novel, West Side Saints. The book is available now, so go buy a copy. And Will, thanks for doing this interview. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Now stay tuned for a short audiobook excerpt from the audiobook of West Side Saints by W.M. Akers, narrated by Bailey Carr, and available wherever audiobooks are sold. On a night of hard frost in the ruins of a burnt church, I found a body in the snow. Its hand poked through the powder, gripping a crumbling stone altar. When I touched the wrist, a fistful of white tumbled away, exposing a derby hat and a tuft of thin orange hair spotted with blood. Find it? called the woman I traveled with. I wiped my hand on my black dress, which had seen much worse than the residue of a corpse, and walked back to her. There's nothing here, I said, and left the dead man behind. It was no feat. I'd been walking away from corpses all winter long. This was March 1922, when our bodies refused to stay buried. Ten days prior, I was spitting off the ledge of Burke's third floor. Owned by one of the rare Westsiders, as short and uncompromising as myself, Burke's was a shabby saloon on the west side half of the stem, whose eastern walls and roof had some years back simply melted away. The exposure to the elements made it a pleasant summertime beer garden. In the winter, it remained popular only with the committed few, 
those antisocial types who would happily freeze for a peek over the top of the fence and the chance to drink illegal liquor in full view of the East Side throng. The people on the far side of Broadway were fat, happy, honorable, and safe. But when they cast their sober eyes up at us, all we saw was thirst. We raised our glasses to say that though west of the fence we had no electricity, no heat, and no conveniences, that though there were no guns on our side of the island, but countless murders just the same, that though we lived in what they called hell, we had liquor, and some nights that made it okay. On the other nights, we spit. It was at least 20 feet from the lip of the saloon to the fence, but that didn't stop us trying to expectorate clear over the barrier to the east side. Long nights were passed in drunken argument about the proper angle to launch one's missile, the ideal texture for flight, and the correct place to stand in order to harness the wind. No one had ever seen anyone clear the fence, but every drinker there insisted that once, just once, they had made it. My mouth was drying and my projectiles were growing feeble when Bex Red appeared at my side, wrapped in every layer of fabric she owned. Born in Florida, but a fixture on the West Side art scene since before the fence was raised, Bex had never embraced the brutality of the New York cold. Sharp blue eyes peeked out through a slit in the scarves that swaddled her head, yet her voice was unmuffled by the cloth. Every time I see you, Gilda, you've managed to find a worse bar, she said. We sat at my table, a few inches from the edge, and I sloshed some gin into a chipped cup. It ran like sludge, and the glass was cold enough to cling to her lips, but she lifted the scarf and drained it. She dug her mittened hand into a coat pocket and pulled out a carefully folded square of thick homemade paper marked up with 99 shades of blue. This is every blue I can mix, she said, and that's every blue there is, from the not-quite-black of deep river water to this washed-out near-white that's too fragile even for a robin's egg. They all look blue to me. You have always lacked an artist's temperament. Thank you. Any of these look right, she said with a theatrical sigh. I ran my finger down the page, squinting until my eyes crossed. Blue 72, maybe, or it could be 74. This was my whole afternoon, you know. Do I get paid for the time? You get paid when I get paid. Are you going to get paid? Probably not. I put the color chart away. Well, while we're on the subject of wasted time, from deep in her coats, she drew a worn paper envelope as soft as an old dollar bill. Inside were three portraits, two I would force myself to look at, and one I could not stand to see. The first showed a man with a gut as round and heavy as a pumpkin, shirtless at a table, a forkful of sausage and cabbage poised before wet red lips. The other was of a woman, handsome but joyless, waiting in line at an east side bank. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. 
Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.